Nuala McKernan Donnelly, herself from East Tyrone, has written a soon-to-be-published book entitled Herson Boy, about the life of Martin Herson. In today's Guhuna Octohian podcast, she tells Martin's story, from growing up in Kappa in County Tyrone, to being imprisoned in Long Cash and the brutality he suffered there, to the legacy he left behind when he gave his life on hunger strike in 1981. Tyrone has a strong history of opposing British rule um, here in Ireland and none really more than East Tyrone. Since the onset of the conflict, the people in East Tyrone were to the forefront of the struggle. Even with the escalation and the troubles in 1969, the first civil rights march was actively organised from Caleland to Dungannon on the 24th of August. And this was controversial um, because the RUC had formed a roadblock uh, in Dungannon and wouldn't let the, the people move. And this was aided and abetted by a mob of loyalists waving flags and sort of being for blood. Uh, so the nationalists of East Tyrone have actually struggled an awful lot here and at, during the conflict and the heavy handed tactics of the British forces. And I suppose one of the most um, famous or controversial things that was ever done was in 1974, where an innocent man, Patrick home he was only 24 years of age, was taken from his home in Lame Hill and Primroy and brought out to a field with his mummy and daddy and shot dead in front of them. So you ask yourself, why would Martin have got involved in, in the conflict or um, and, and, and subsequently ended up in jail and went on hunger strike and died. And, and that's, I think, an example that would have, you know, led a lot of men to, to getting involved um, around East Tyrone. That's, this is, that's only one example of, of, of a case here that, that would have happened where Martin and his, and his comrades would have stood up and resisted British rule. Um, the area was also in existence, pretty much so in East Tyrone at the time, and um, the county had played its part in the border campaign in 1956 to 62, where experienced volunteers were still ready in the 70s to sort of reinvigorate and restructure the movement. And Galvin and Kappa weren't found wanting from the start of that um, to the present day. In relation to Martin's personal story, he was born on the 13th of September in 1954 in a wee place called Gale in Kappa. Um, I actually was in it last night giving Brenton the book. Brother, it's, it's one of the most picturesque, beautiful places I've ever seen. Uh, he was born of parents Mary Ann and Johnny. He was actually called Edward Martin Herson, named after his maternal granda. He was the second of nine children. He went to school in Cross Kavanagh Primary School and then on to St Patrick's Intermediate in Dungannon where he was the life and soul of the party and everybody right across Martin's story knows that he was always up to the crack and a lovely, a really lovely guy. He then went on to do um, welding and fitting and he was renowned right across for being a really, really hard worker. Um, and then even his father had said 
um, that he had never ever missed a day as work in his life until he was actually arrested. And this was also correlated by the prisoners in sales. Uh, they said that he was a powerhouse, always working in a jail. He put his head down and just worked all the time. Uh, Martin Donnelly, the OC of uh, Cage 13, where Martin was um, in the case before he moved to the blocks, had said he he just was a complete another powerhouse and kept the throne PDF going. He was solidly sending out stuff. His mummy died when he was only 13 years of age, and it was um, a massive, profound effect on Martin. But they were a very, very close family, and the Hurston family are a lovely family, um, and they were very, very good to Martin um, to help him get through this. And he also had a strong devotion to St Martin de Porres himself and would have always had the wee book coming in um, monthly and he had the wee St Martin book in jail with him. He then went uh, to England to work and over to Manchester to his brother Francie, um, God rest his soul, and, and his wife Sally um, and he stuck with only for a wee while and then he, he, he wanted to get back home. So he came home and met Bernie in 1975, Bernda Dunley, who was his fiance. They met at a pre-wedding rehearsal for Bernie's sister, Mary Rose. And Bernie tells the story that whenever she's seen him, the minute she's seen him, she just straight away failed for him. She just couldn't get him out of her head. Uh, and and even to this day, you know, she, she sort of recalls the story with, with that uh she was supposed to be paired with Martin at the wedding and, and whatever happened, somebody else ended up being paired with them. Much to Bernie's disappointed, she was she didn't like this at all. But uh, I think Martin obviously felt the same because they had met at a disco and that later on and um, they, they eventually got together and they were very, very close um, right up to the end. Um, and they actually got engaged in jail and it's sort of a wee funny story. Martin had a had a red Avenger car. And um, again, this, this car was sort of famous with Martin, but he sold it to buy the engagement ring. He got Francie, the brother, to sell it to buy the engagement ring. So Francie had given Bernie the money and herself and a couple of friends headed to Dundalk to buy the engagement ring. And she went into a shop and she's seen it. And it's actually in the book. Um, she's seen the ring and she fell in love with this ring. and. The friend that was with her said, no, come on, you need to go and look for some more and see, you know, if it's if this is the right one. And anyway, it was the right one. When they bought their ring, uh, the woman in the shop said, oh, God, just make a lovely couple. And, you know, it was sort of sad because Martin the Critter was sitting in Nongesh at the time, you know. And the day that they actually got engaged, and again, throughout all the horror of this and the sadness of this story, there, there is wee funny bits. So Brenton... Brenton took Bernie into the jail and on the official part where they were going to do the actual engagement, uh, he decided he would go and make a cup of go and get a cup of tea in the venting machine because it was, you know, he shouldn't have been there, sort of thing. So off they went, off he went, and whatever Bernie and Martin were doing, by the time poor Brenton came back with the three cups of tea, uh, the, the 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 deed hadn't been done and uh, <laughs> poor Martin, <laughs> poor Brenton had to go back and get more tea. So I think. They're only like three minutes left of the visit and there were six cups of tea. But the long and short of it is Martin and Bernie were engaged and it was great. And they had a, 
they had a night up here in, in Tyrone for them. And again, Bernie says it's lovely, all the families and their friends done everything, but Martin wasn't in jail and she wasn't with them. So um that was that was Bernie and Martin's wee story. Um so anyway, in relation to the arrests uh of Martin in the 9th of November 1976, the RUC um came heavy-handedly to Kappa. And they arrested Pacho O'Neill, Peter Kane, and Dermot Boyle. And then two days later, they came back for Jimmy Raverty, Peter Nugent, Kevin O'Brien, who was Martin's best friend, and, and Martin. And they were taken to Oma Barracks, where they were it, like it, it reverberated around the county um, about the, the beatings that they got. They were systematically tortured and beaten beyond belief and forced to sign statements. Martin himself was charged with a litany of things, explosives, membership, you name it. Um, and there actually was never a shred of evidence against him. Um, and because there were sort of forced statements, they really, he really should never have been charged. Uh, they, they went from home to Cookstown and Cookstown had sort of threatened, you know, that they would go back to Oma sort of thing. But Martin, uh, the judge ignored the brutality that was was um, shown in Oma and sentenced Martin to 20 years in Nonchesh. Uh, he had been in remand for a year um, in the Kromanikesh and um, he ended up in cage nine in Longkesh. Um, he actually should never have been in the cages. And I don't know if everybody knows that, but because he was charged after 1976, and that was the whole criminalization policy. And um, he, he actually should have went straight to the blocks. However, the other boys were going to the cash and Martin got out of the van, and, or going to the cages, sorry, and Martin got out of the van with them and ended up in cage nine, where Stan Corrigan, God of Mercy, was, was the OC at the time. And uh, the governor came to Stan and said, you know, this isn't right. He shouldn't be in the cages. So Stan had said, look, you dropped him off here with the men he was charged with. Uh, and he's here now. So he's staying here, going nowhere. And I suppose Stan says himself, said himself, you know, because the thing was so contentious at the time, they probably just, instead of wanting the cages then to maybe start um, a real massive protest, they just left him there for the way. And, and Stan spoke very, very fondly of him. And then he was moved over to cage 13, which was a transitional cage. And you either were there to finish off your sentence or you were going to go to the blocks. So it wouldn't have been, you know, maybe the, the best mental place to be, you know, because obviously we know, we know what going on the blocks was going to be like. Some people found it more difficult than others, but Martin um, had said, that Martin Horson just put his head down, done his work, as I said before, worked like a Trojan um, in relation to doing crafts and stuff, and just was a solid gay, got on with it and done his time. Then, obviously, uh, Martin had appealed this case because of the, the, the beatings in Oma, and that he, it didn't matter. Um, whereas I say, it should, the case actually should have been dropped. It wasn't, and, and they accepted this Cookstown statement, and the sentence stood. One of the stories that stood out for me in relation to Martin's story was 
were they went to, when they were going on town to Town Hall Street on remand, um, because of the abuse that the prisoners were suffering, um, the OC had said to them, you know, to protest when they were going up for, for their cases. And um, Kevin O'Brien told the story where Martin, they all got in, there was about 30 of them got into what they call the horse box. And Martin, uh, of course, the, the doors opened and Martin was the first name that was called out. Um, and every everybody said that Martin was, he got more abuse nearly than everybody else. He was nearly picked on and got beat harder and more than everybody else. And part of me thinks that that's because he was a country gay and they tried to break the prisoners and they thought maybe, you know, that he was, he, he would have been an easy man to break. And, and as we know now, he certainly wasn't. Uh, but the, he, the first person that called out was Martin's name. And they said to him, are you protesting or coming voluntarily? And he said, I'm protesting. And they got him by the heels and pulled him to the ground on his back um, very forcefully and pulled him down the horseback, um, dragged him up the street and dragged him up, um, I don't know how many flights of stairs to get in front of the judge, pulled him to his feet. And the judge just put him back and done the same thing again and really, really, really caused severe injury to his back where Martin couldn't even really lay in bed or anything from that on. It was really bad. And then there was other, you know, the other real abuse. Martin, they all were killed and they all were beaten badly, as we know. Um, But there was a period where there was forced washing done um, because obviously there were protesting prisoners and and this was a way of another way of getting to them as such. So they put them into baths and um, they shaved off their hair and shaved off their beards, put them in this bath where I think there was six people held Martin down and took uh, deck brushes, scrubbing brushes to him. And, and they done this to other people too, but uh, they, they practically tore the skin off him. Uh, they broke bones in his feet. It was horrendous. I think he spent the guts of six weeks in, in hospital after it. They completely took out a disc in his back. He had, um, he had a slip disc from the beating. And that in turn led to him being paralysed down the left-hand side of his leg. Um, because as we know then, he had that previous back injury. And he never said a word. He never said to his family. He never said, you know, they'd done it, they didn't. And even when... Um, the family went in to see Martin in the hospital. They had taken one of his good friends, Jean Hughes, to uh, see him. And the family sent him in first to see what his reaction would be. And he walked past Martin. This man that was grow- who grew up with Martin walked past him. And Martin actually spoke to him. And he turned back. And he actually didn't recognise Martin. He was so failed and so beaten. Um, and even throughout the doing of the book, um, he said, I find it hard to understand how any human being could actually do that to another human being. Um, and another prisoner had had met Martin and talked about it. And he said, Martin himself had said, I'm no criminal and they won't break me. No matter how hard they beat me, they won't break me. So as we know, Martin commenced the hunger strike and um, Danny Morrison tells the story of where he was going to tell the family where Martin was going on the strike and he went up uh, the lane and Johnny the father was cutting ahead 
And ironically, when I went up to the house last night to give Branton the book, Branton was cut in the head. Um, and he stopped on the lane and he got out and, and Danny said, you know, I'm Danny Morrison from Belfast and I'm here. And Johnny says, I know why you're here, Martin told us. So Martin commenced the hunger strike and it had to be desperate for the family. And they were brilliant. They were a brilliant family. Uh, they worked so hard. And obviously, you know, Martin stood for election in Longford and West Meath. They were on the road day and night um, supporting them and helping them. However, we know that Martin died at half four on the 13th of July after 46 days in hunger strike, even as a hunger striker today. And even during that time, um, the vindictiveness of the prison authorities, they wouldn't even let Bernie in because she wasn't family, even though she was engaged to be married them, they wouldn't let her in. And Brenton was in, but Francie had been in Donegal with his family um, at a rally for the hunger strikers and got the word that Martin was really ill. And it actually wasn't from the prison, it was from some of the other hunger strikers' families. The word had come out that Martin was really ill. And uh, they all made their way to Long Cash. But Francie wasn't, didn't get there in time. Say if it was eight o'clock, he was there like 10 minutes later and they wouldn't let him in. So even when the creator was on his deathbed, you know, they denied him the right of his family beside him, uh, as only Branton was allowed to be there. Whenever he, whenever Branton went in, obviously Martin wasn't conscious and, and he had said to the screw, you know, why did you just not ring us? And the screw laid to him and said, sure, he was up this morning and he got washed and, and cleaned up himself and shaved and that. And it wasn't until a couple hours later where another screw came in and he said, no, he's been like this for days. We have had to wash him and shave him. So um, Brenton was there with a priest and um, some of the prison authorities and, and Martin Dade. And again, like in them days, if you're talking 1981, they didn't have mobile phones or that. The Brits had put out that Martin had died into the media. And the family that were coming down that morning to make to go to see Martin um, heard it on the media that he had died. So that that's that's inhumane, you know. Um, and, and even in his death, they couldn't stop that. So again, they took they sent Martin's body to Oma hospital and they didn't tell the family so that where the family were going down to the jail martin wasn't there they had moved martin sort of in the undercover of darkness to oma oma barks or sorry oma hospital um and when they were removing the body from oma it was all accounts was it was desperate uh ruc dogs they wouldn't let the family um near the coffin um, they thought even when the coffin was coming out that it was going to drop. He, you know, Bernadette had said she thought they were going to completely hijack the body and they weren't going to get to bury, to bury Martin or have a funeral. And that the dogs, they were sat nearly the dogs on the people. Um, remember, it's the 13th of July, so um, obviously it's marching season. And instead of going the route that the family wanted to go to go to get back to Kiapa, they wanted to reroute them around all the loyalist areas. So it was desperate too. It was a really contentious, hurtful thing that they were doing. Um, and there was like it was an insatiable hunger for hurt and destruction by, by the RUC and the Brits. Um, however, Martin did come home 
and over 100 cars followed the cortege back to Kepa and where he then was met by uh, volunteers from Oglina Heron, Common and Nafina Heron. And one of the stories was where Mary Nellis had said herself and Patsy O'Hara's mother had come from Derry up to Martin's um, wake. And, and everybody across the country, nobody expected Martin to die. Martin died very, very quick. And he died a very painful, hard death um, by all accounts. Um, she said about they left Derry and they came to Kappa and she said the roads were... and. The roads were just tiny and there was hills and glens, as we know, you know, Kappa and Galvali is. Um, but she said she, they were stopped, like every every five minutes they were stopped to come up the road. But eventually they got up at to Martin and she said she'll never forget when she went into the room and she's seen what was really a kid. You know, he was only 24, lying in a coffin and it broke her heart. She said, really, it was it was a horrendous thing. But then, anyway, Martin, so there was hundreds and thousands and there were busing people up to the house uh, and people coming to support the Hurston family and burned it. Um, Sean Lynch was Martin's election agent in Longford, West Neath, uh, when he went for Chuck the Dalla. And he done the oration at his funeral. And he said that Martin had the same virtue of patriotism and spiritualism and unselfish love for Ireland that casement Pierce McSweeney, Stag and Sands had. And I have to say, I was only 10 years of age in, in the 1980 hunger sticks. And um, I remember obviously the, the you know the posters, but that was that's just an image. And and from having done this book, um, I feel like I know Martin now at the stage of the game. And it's unbelievable that every single person that I have talked to. Every single person says the same thing. There's nobody has differed. There's nobody has said some wee bit different. Number one, that he was an absolute gentleman, um, a really solid, good, good guy, um, a very, very strongly committed volunteer and proud member of the East Rome Brigade of Oglina Heron. He was a real joker. Um, he was he was an awful messer by all accounts. Um, and and wasn't afraid of a joke being played on him either. Um, the worst singer, I think, in Ireland, um, and and they're all saying about you know the, he'd be singing out, out at night when the when the screws would go and they'd be singing out of the doors and that, and that when Martin would sing, it was just hysterical like because he was so bad. But it, he'd laughing and whatever didn't stop him. He just kept kept her lip. Um, and I think really that's Martin. What I can see from his story is he he joined the movement to make the country a better place and to play his part in the role of Irish freedom. I think, I can't speak to the dead, but I think he was here today. He would do it all again. And I think his his family and the rest of us and Bernadette are extremely proud of him, um, of the great, great Irish man that he was. And I think the onus is on the rest of us to step back into his shoes and, and finish the job that, that he fought so hard for and suffered so much for.